Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. The best way to sleep is to approximate the way you evolved to sleep. The best way to eat is to approximate the way you evolved to eat, right? There are no donuts. There are no, you know, there are no Twinkies. There, was, there, there are no mocha lattes. 200 years ago, right? Like people ate food. They ate, they ate animals and they ate, you know, fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds. And you look at, you know, how did a hunter gather live? That's how we evolved to eat. It isn't about being perfect. It's about being better. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephanie Stima, and I host expert discussions with thought leaders in all facets of health, including nutrition, fitness, hormones, stress management, performance, recovery, longevity, health span, and energy production. On this show, we discuss complex science, but then we also alchemize it into actionable, everyday living. The ultimate goal with the show is to assist you in making informed decisions about your health and to catapult you into being the hero in your own life. Betty's welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I am bringing you a conversation with Dr. Kirk Parsley, and we are talking all about sleep optimization, recovery, and performance optimization. A little bit about Dr. Parsley. He joined the Navy SEALs right out of high school at about 17 years of age. He spent the next decade with the SEALs living at in the peak of his physical and mental health. After serving with the SEALs, he entered medical school at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences in Bethesda. Dr. Parsley graduated in 2004. He interned in obstetrics and gynecology at Balboa Naval Hospital in San Diego in 2005, and subsequently completed a Navy residency in hyperbarics and diving medicine in 2006. Well, I invited Dr. Parsley on because I wanted to talk all things sleep mechanics, and that's exactly what we talked about. We talked about sleep's impact on exercise performance, appetite, food choices, its influence on cardiovascular disease, on insulin resistance. We talked about menopause and perimenopausal changes with sleep and some of the hormonal considerations. Of course, we talked about the WHI, the Women's Health Initiative, for a little bit. And as you might infer, neither of us are fans. We talked about testosterone, progesterone, estrogens. We talked about sleep remedies, so some of the common remedies that people utilize and the natural supplementation that Dr. Parsley himself has created. And we will have all of the links for you in the show notes. So Dr. Parsley's sleep remedy, there's clickable links in there. And before we just jump into the conversation, I did want to take a moment to read a review that came in from the U.S. of A., from one of our beautiful listeners in the United States, GMOGO, Wealth of Information. So GMOGO says, I love this show. The recent two-part episode in perimenopause and menopause was incredibly helpful. I bought Dr. Stephanie's book, but still in my reading queue, so I'm listening to the podcast during my workout for now. Thank you for this amazing resource as I work to optimize my health at 49. 
And let me just say, I love receiving messages like that. It's okay that it's in your queue, just as long as it eventually gets to the top of the queue. And I would love to hear your thoughts once you get to it, GMO Geo. Thank you so much for leaving that review. And if you, my dear listener, feel like this podcast is benefiting your life in any way, one of the free rate ways to support the show is to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or a review on Apple Podcasts. Or if you listen to us on Spotify, leaving us a rating on Spotify as well. Or you can listen to us and leave comments on YouTube. We're very active there. as well. Okay, so on to the show. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Kirk Parsley. Dr. Kirk Parsley, I'm just thrilled to welcome you to The Better Podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the soapbox. The soapbox, yeah, and we yeah. were having a great little. Does me no chat. good to preach when I don't have a soapbox. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. If no one's listening, why am I talking? Right, um, right. I'm. I'm so happy to welcome you. We're going to talk all about sleep. You are, you know, medical doctor, retired Navy SEAL. We're going to talk about your story today as well. But I wanted to just jump right in into sleep physiology because this is where you are, you know, well regarded in terms of being an expert here. So let's just jump right in and talk about. From a performance perspective, what happens when we don't sleep? So, you know, what is sleep's impact or lack of sleep's impact on exercise performance? And then maybe we can wade into appetite and food choices. It it seems like you're pretty entrepreneurial too. So, you know, the the absolute worst sales pitch in the world is that my product does everything. And, but that's what sleep is, right? Like, like everything you want to get better at, it's dependent upon how well you sleep, which is a terrible pitch. And that's why I have to do all sorts of circles to get people to believe me about this stuff. But, you know, basically there's, there's nothing, no aspiration that you have, no, no future that you want is going to come to you with poor sleep. And if it does, it's going to take longer and be harder and not as good and all that other stuff. You know, you're born into a contract, you know, on, on this planet that one, you're going to die. Nobody gets out of this alive. And two, you know, it takes eight hours to recover from being awake for 16 hours. And people don't want to hear that. I do private consulting with high-end executives, entrepreneurs, all this type of stuff. And they're go-getter people. And I can say, I want you to eat nothing but kale. And they'll say, okay, and eat nothing but kale. I want you to do two hours of exercise every day. Okay. And I want you to meditate for an hour a day. And like, okay. And I say, you need to sleep eight hours a day. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I can't, I don't that's have time That's where I that. draw the line down. Yeah. Like, I don't, like that's, that's for weak people. I don't need that much. Yeah. And the problem, and the biggest problem is that our, our subjective experience of our lack of sleep is terrible. So it's like getting drunk. You know, when you, when you take somebody who's sleep adapted and you only, and, and you take six hours of sleep away from them and you test them on something like even something that's their proficiency, and and you say how did you know how do you think you did and they say i i did worse and you'll be like yeah you did do worse and here's the evidence and it doesn't matter what it is strength speed endurance cognition problem solving creativity it doesn't matter you'll do worse and you'll know you did worse and then day two you give them six hours and they'll say the same thing day three maybe they say the same thing but by day four 100 of people will say i've completely adapted to the six hours of sleep and i'm doing as well as i've ever done and you show them the data you go you know that curve's still going down man you're still getting worse and they don't believe you. They won't believe you. And they'll argue with the researchers. So, you know, the, you know, we, we can get way into the weeds, but, you know, sort of the 30,000 foot view is that the whole reason that I'm going to sleep tonight is to repair everything that I do to myself today and to prepare my body for tomorrow. My brain and my body are going to use today as a template to figure out what I need to be better at tomorrow, right? And if I could go to sleep tonight and I could repair 100%, 
and I could prepare 100%, meaning like all my cells have all the nutrients stored that they need, right? I've flushed out all the waste products. I've gotten everything balanced, right? And like like you mentioned, we'll talk later about uh, weight promoting neurotransmitters and appetite regulation and all that type of stuff. But all my hormones are in order. Everything's in order. And if I could do that 100%, I would wake up the same every day, which means I would never age, right? I would be exactly the same every day. Now, that doesn't happen when we're young, it happens. When we're young, like you wake up better, right? When you're adolescent, you know, kid, adolescent, teenager, like you wake up better, stronger, smarter, taller, faster. Taller, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you, so you're actually getting better. And then about 25, that kind of plateaus to about 35-ish. And then it really starts kind of going the other way. And, you know, th- so if you choose to sleep six hours instead of eight hours, you're choosing to age 25% faster. And that's just the way it is. Yeah, there, there's no way to argue that. Like the twenty five, the twenty five percent is coming from the two hours less. Yeah, two two out yeah. of eight, right? So you're mm-hmm. you're you're reducing your recovery by twenty five percent. You're aging twenty five percent faster. And we can talk about the horm- how the hormones change and why that's probably worse than twenty five percent. But you know, it's at least aging twenty five percent faster. So you know, to your point, like, wh- how does it affect performance? Well, as most people know, when you work out, say like you know, if, let's say something simple to, to do is like weightlifting. So when you lift weights, what's the goal to increase your muscle strength, at least maintain your muscle strength, muscle mass, muscle mass is the primary predictor of how well you, or how long you're going to live and how disease free you'll be. So when I go to the gym and I work out, I lift weights, the whole idea is to lift more weights faster than I can, you know, lift those weights. Right. So I, I do as much work as I possibly can and if I've done my job well, I'm weaker, right? I come out of the gym weaker. I should, right? And so when do I get stronger? Why don't I just get weaker every day? Well, it's only when I go to sleep do I get stronger. So when I go to sleep and I go through the deep sleep stages, and if you want to talk in detail, we can go through the stages one by one and what's happening in that. But when you go through the deep sleep, that's when all my hormones are being re- regulated. And I'm, it's the most anabolic time of my life. It's when my stress hormones are the lowest. The lowest my stress hormones will ever be in any 24-hour period is during my first sleep cycle because that's 90% deep sleep. And during that time, my body's going to start repairing. It's going to fight off infections. It's going to fight off parasites. And fight, you know, it's antimicrobial time, but also like, you know, overused tendons, overused ligaments. If I've injured myself, any of that stuff, that's all going to be fixed during anabolic activity, which is deep sleep. That's the most anabolic I will ever be. And so my muscles will actually, my muscle and my brain combined with all their signaling, they're going to tell each other, hey, what we did today was lift too much weight. <laughs> like we overstressed these muscles. And if you work out hard enough, you actually ru- you can after actually rupture muscle cells. And then my my body's going to build that muscle back so that it's stronger, so it's thicker, and it's able to do that weight. And so the next time I do that same amount of weight, that same amount of speed, it should be easier for my body to do and cause less damage. Because, you know, there's nothing in us to like put on muscle and look like bodybuilders look good on stage, right? Like, they're, they're, like we're not designed for that. What we're designed to well, is to expensive. adapt to our... Yeah. yeah, it's expensive to do that. We're, we're designed to adapt to our environment so that we can handle our environment better. And so if we're doing endurance activity, that's what our muscles are going to you know, prepare ourselves for. If we're lifting weights, that's what it's going to do. And your muscles will get a little bigger, but only to the extent they need to, 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 you know, progress, you know, to manage that load that you're doing today. 
your muscles are going to try to be prepared better to do that tomorrow. And you can get progressively stronger that way. And the same thing with endurance activity, you can get progressively faster that way. But if all you do is sit on your butt and watch television, what does your brain and body have to repair to, right? Like if you really tax your mind, you know, your mind uses up 20, you know, your brain uses up 25% of your energy sources, 20, 25% of your glucose, 25% of your oxygen, and 25% of the body's ATP in this one little section of our of our body. So if you're really taxing your brain, well, then when you're in REM sleep, well, deep sleep replenish, like what flushes out waste products and replenishes nutrients. But REM sleep is where actually you start connecting all of the pathways that everything that you've heard today, everything that you've learned today, everything you've thought about today, whether you know it or not, you're going to rehearse during REM sleep. And it's happening so fast. You know, it's not like you would have any conscious recollection of it, but it's happening so fast. You're going to rehearse everything and your and your brain and your body are going to determine, do we want to hold on to that information or not? If not, we're going to prune that new little budding that was coming off of that neuron to maybe make a new connection. But if we like it, we're going to make sure that that connection is made. And then the more connections you make to that piece of information, the all the different angles you can come at it. Now you actually know that information and you can work with it creatively. You can come at it from different angles than you learned it because you've attached it to other things. So that's a really short, really short version of how it enhances performance. But the other side of that coin is if you don't sleep well, you're right. You're decreasing the extent that that happens. Like you can't, you don't do it a hundred percent or zero percent, but you know, it's, it, it's adjusted by how well you're sleeping and how long you're sleeping, especially the brain stuff. Because when you, when you wake up early is when you're primarily taking REM away from yourself. When you go to bed super late, it's, you're more likely to decrease deep sleep and REM sleep. But if you go to bed at, at a reasonable time every night, but then you're getting up at 4am because Jocko said to, then you're, you know, you're losing that if you're only getting six hours of sleep, well, you're primarily losing REM sleep and that's affecting your cognition, which is also your emotions and problem solving. Build, I would say you know, your mental ability. health as well, like your anxiety, Absolutely. your propensity Absolutely. to be able to emotionally regulate is going to be attenuated as well. If you're cut, if you're chronically, I don't, I don't, I don't know how Jocko does it, but you know, I, I definitely need my, I definitely need my eight, sometimes nine, depending on, you know, we can talk about menstrual cycles, but yeah. certain times of my cycle, I actually need to sleep more than than other times, but I definitely well, Jock, Jocko sleeps about seven and a half hours. He goes to bed like okay. eight thirty, eight thirty. Okay. So, right. so he's I redeemed mean, himself. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> but the, you know, there are, there are some people that can get, you know, they can get away with sleep deprivation a little better than others. Like nobody's optimal with a little bit of sleep deprivation, but some people just suffer less. Like it makes sense with, with anything, right? Some people suffer less running a mile than other people. Some people suffer less lifting weights, like whatever. So there's variations between humans. But as far as like that's that short sleeper gene that people always talk about, super sleepers, that's been completely misrepresented in the press is that there are people who do, who only need this much sleep. Like, no, it's, they just don't suffer as much as the rest of us. If, if you, you know, if, if you, if you gave them eight hours, if if they got eight hours sleep, they'd still perform better, you know, but they just don't suffer as much as most of us if they're doing six every night. 
I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health. The list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Let me, let me stress test something with you because this is something I've observed myself and this could be, I could be totally wrong here. But I, on the nights where I don't sleep well, so I will have maybe on a weekly basis, there'll be one night where I don't sleep well. If I have training the next morning, transiently, I will feel like I have a better workout The on slightly sleep deprived. So if I haven't slept well, I've, I've had, you know, breaks in my sleep, let's say. Mm-hmm. And my theory is that it's because I have a lot more cortisol running through my body and I can't actually, brilliant. I don't, I don't actually feel, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Great, great longevity strategy strategy there, but mm. I actually don't feel the weights. Like they're not at, they don't feel as heavy to me. I'm not as tired, but that's just right. one night. I can't do it for, if I'm sleep deprived for two nights, you know, my, my propensity for force pressure that I can generate again, goes in the, in the tank. 
but it's just that one night if I have, is that, is that, am I off here? Is that just something that I'm telling no. myself a fantasy or what do you, what no, do you think about them? No, people, people will, people will report that frequently, not just that, but also people who are chronically depressed. If they, if they're long sleepers and they sleep on one short night, they might feel really good the next day, but you're exactly right. So, you know, back to my sort of original 30,000 foot view, if, if the whole reason for me to go to sleep tonight is to repair and to prepare for tomorrow, and I cut it short by two hours, well, tomorrow still comes, right? And I still have to do everything that I was going to do if I slept eight hours, but I, I'm doing it with six hours. So where does that, where do those extra resources come from? And you're exactly right. They're coming from adrenals, right? They're, and you know, not just cortisol, but also epinephrine and norepinephrine, adrenaline and adrenaline for the brain, essentially. And if you think about it, you know, when somebody is, you know, obviously the maximum stress hormone production you you can have, we call that fight or flight, right? And then the absolute minimum stress hormones is deep sleep. Fight or flight, if you think about it, you you actually feel superhuman. Now, there's usually fear involved, so it doesn't feel great. But if you if you were in tuned with your body, your you know, your pulmonary tree dilates, you take in more oxygen, your heart rate grows up, your blood pressure goes up, your blood glucose goes up, your pupils dilate, you take in a bigger field of vision, your your all of your senses get you know, and the the acuity of all your senses increase, your reflexes get faster, you're faster, you're stronger, you're like your muscles are faster and stronger, more endurance. And you'd say, Well, why why can't I just be in that state all the time? And that would be fantastic, wouldn't it? And like, I could just run around superhuman all the time. Well, the problem is that's 100% catabolic. You're using your body as the fuel source to get through that because nothing else matters, right? Like if you don't get away from the tiger, it doesn't matter if you can fight off infection. It doesn't matter if you can digest food. It doesn't matter if you can reproduce because all that matters is getting away from the tiger. If you don't, if once you get away from the tiger, all the stress hormones should come back down. Unfortunately, we live in an environment where we don't have tigers, but we have, you know, I don't know, little barn cats running around all the time. So like we have like a little bit of extra stress. So it makes sense that if you wake up and if you think about it too, when you go to sleep, you know, there's tons of sleep research done in caves and pill bunkers and all this stuff where there's zero, zero light. You know, there's artificial light put in there and on timers, or whatever. And there's zero, there's zero interaction with the outside world. You're in this completely cool, dark place. Now, if you put, if I put somebody in a completely cold, dark, cool, dark, dark place with nothing but like a bed and a toilet, the average person would sleep about 12 and a half hours when they first started doing that. And then over time, they would progressively whittle down to about eight hours of sleep, which is where we get that number from primarily. You know, the, the important thing to think about it is, they're going to wake up at some point and it's not light waking them up and it's not sound waking them up and it's not somebody else waking them up. So why are they waking up? They're waking up because cortisol is coming up, right? So when you go to sleep, your cortisol crashes and that first cycle of deep sleep, lowest, like you said, the lowest cortisol you'll have throughout your entire day. And then it starts gradually creeping back up over the course of the night. And at some point in the morning, it's higher than the point that allows you to go to sleep, right? So cortisol comes down enough, you can fall asleep. And at some point, it crawls back up and it's going to wake you up. Well, if you wake up early and you're, you know, say like you need to wake up here, you need this much cortisol to wake up, but you wake up early around here and your alarm clock goes off and you get some coffee or whatever. And it's like, 
right? And you and you just spike your cortisol early, and so you you wake up compensating with cortisol, and you have a like the area under the curve of cortisol will be will be higher, bigger, will be bigger that day. You'll actually secrete more cortisol, but you'll secrete it earlier in the day too, and you'll feel great. The problem is, like you say, if you do that on a consistent basis, that's catabolic activity every day. So you're depleting your resources every single day. And the other problem with running off of cortisol is that, like I said, cortisol has to reach a certain level for you to fall asleep and get good quality sleep. And if you're compensating for sleep deprivation by secreting more cortisol, well, then your cortisol is higher when you're trying to go to sleep, isn't it? And now you can't sleep because your cortisol is high and your cortisol keeps going high because you're not sleeping well. And you get in this, you know, you know, self-driven downward spiral that, you know, self-licking ice cream cone, essentially, it never like it never goes away. Let's talk, you mentioned the four stages of sleep. Let's talk briefly about, I like to call it a bit of a hormonal dance. It's a bit of a tango. You know, there has to be a lead and a follow yeah. uh, in terms of the hormones that have to, you know, you've been talking about cortisol and the cortisol awakening response, which is that big surge of cortisol in the morning. It should look like, typically, if you look at it, you know, as you said, this area under the curve, it should almost look like a ski slope during the day. It's like peak, right. and then it should, you know, gradually over the course of the day, come down. But there are other hormones as well that are involved in proper sleep-wake cycles. I, I wondered if you might touch on adenosine for a moment and then melatonin, endogenously yeah. produced melatonin uh, yeah. for, for now. We'll, we'll talk about supplementation today too. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, the like you said, the dance is very complex. You know, every, everything that we sort of discuss is the endocrine system. So, testosterone, estradiol, growth hormone, thyroid, adrenal hormones, all all of that stuff is being regulated during sleep. So when you first go to sleep, you know, you go to sleep in stage one, and basically all that's happening in stage one is that you're losing a little sensory awareness. Obviously, your all your sensory organs still work while you're asleep, but you just your brain quits paying attention to them. And that's because of GABA, which I'll I'll cover more in a second. But you you start getting ready to go to sleep and, and, you know, it's a little fuzzy, like you can hear stuff in the other room or you can hear or taste or smell or feel or things, but but it's the sensory is not quite the same. You realize you're not processing it quite the same. We all know that kind of half awake feeling. Then you go into stage two, which is, you know, which is, you know, proper sleep, but there's there's not a whole lot of hormonal triggers going on in that in that stage. It's more it's more tran- transitory. So you start going down from stage two to stage three, which is the first level of deep sleep. Stage four, it's the the deepest level of sleep. Sometimes that whole block is just called slow wave sleep. And sometimes that whole block is just called deep sleep, but it's all the same thing. And then, you know, that goes across time and and then you start crawling back up and it's, you know, you go from four to three to two. Then instead of going back to one, you go up to REM and then you do a REM cycle. And then once you come back down to stage two, we call that one sleep cycle. And the first sleep cycle is about 90% deep sleep and then a tiny little bit of REM. And then the next sleep cycle is a little more REM and a little less deep. And then by the time you wake up in the morning, your last sleep cycle is like 90% REM and 10% deep sleep. And your cortisol is gradually creeping up. So, you know, the first thing that happens, you know, obviously we're, we're all, you know, all we are is a, is a very complex organizations of trillions of little cells that are all doing the same thing, right? They're taking in oxygen, they're taking in resources, they're doing work, they're producing waste products. <clears throat> and so, you know, we're, we're just kind of a bigger version of that. And so, you know, when we go to, when we go to sleep, there's a bunch of waste products and the biggest, 
the the biggest area that we need to clear is our brains because our brain our brain actually doesn't have a ton of blood supply given how how metabolically active it is it's crazy that it can do what it does with as little blood supplies it has obviously we have the cerebral spinal fluid which is like providing resources for it but also waste products are building up in there and so when we first go to sleep the the astrocyte the, the glial cells actually contract and create little cavities to flush more cerebral spinal fluid and get rid of waste products once the waste products are gone, <clears throat> that and starts these are the triggering. These waste products, sorry to interrupt you, Doc, but these are like the byproducts of metabolism during the day. Yeah. These are the tau tangles, the beta amyloid yeah. plaques and stuff that's sort of built up over the, you know, having yes. a, a, the consequence of being awake, let's say. A okay. Absolutely. Okay. And, and, you know, something that's, you know, obviously there's always anabolic and catabolic activity going on. Something, uh, you know, sort of simplistic, I, I tell to my, my clients is that being awake is catabolic and being asleep is anabolic, right? And so you're, you're doing all of your anabolic activity, which means I'm taking, I'm taking small, simple things and building big, complex things out of them. So, at, you know, or as an example, I'm taking amino acids and I'm repairing my muscles, right? Or I'm using these, you know, these hormones and cell signalers and I'm, rebuilding my muscle fibers that have been damaged or I'm repairing my tendons or ligaments, whatever. And then I'm also regulating my, my, my appetite hormones, right? So my, my leptin sensitivity. So the hormone that comes from my fat to tell my brain how much fat I have. And then that changes my fuel partitioning. Ghrelin also erection that also gets balanced during deep sleep cycles, growth hormone, testosterone, Estradiol comes from testosterone primarily, but DHEA, again, part of the precursors of both testosterone and estradiol. So all, all of my anabolic hormones, including thyroid, which is actually anabolic, all, all of my hormones, my insulin, all of that's being regulated during deep sleep. And I'm, like I said, I'm being really anabolic. I'm repairing things. I'm fighting off infections and I'm trying to get my imprint to prepare for tomorrow, right? Well, I'm trying to repair and to prepare for tomorrow. And then when I go into REM sleep, all like I've flushed out all the waste products and I have metabolic and anabolic energy. I've repaired, I've transformed a lot of my adenosine to ATP instead of just adenosine now. And I'm going to start that process that I talked about earlier. I'm going to start rehearsing things that I've learned and thought of during the day. I'm going to figure out if I want to hold on to that information or not. And if I'm going to make a durable pathway out of that or get rid of that pathway altogether. And so that happens every sleep cycle, again, more and more REM, less and less deep. And so when you wake up in the morning, your metabolic set point. So one, obviously we know cortisol is a stress hormone. The higher your cortisol is, the higher your appetite is going to be. Because the only time any animal on this planet sleep deprives itself other than humans is if it's being stalked, you know, it's being, it's being preyed upon or if it's starving to death. And if it start, obviously if it's being stalked, it needs to be awake to get away from whatever's stalking it. But if it's starving, it wants to be able to wake up earlier and forage further and get, you know, further and further away from the area with no food and, you know, inter interferes with, with our impulse control. So they'll try novel foods. Just so we're the same thing, you know, like our body perceives sleep deprivation as a, as a stressor. And it almost certainly, I mean, you can't prove this, but evolutionarily, it makes a lot of sense that our bodies would say, you know, like our brains and body would say, oh, we must be being preyed upon or we must be like, we must be starving. And so when your body thinks it's starving, your appetite is pushed towards fat, 
right? And it's pushed towards the fastest glucose source you can possibly have. Fortunately for us now, we have high fructose corn syrup, which is like even more than sucrose. And so you're going to crave fatty foods. Your metabolic set point for like when you're full, so your hormones telling your brain that you're full, though, like the sensitivity of that's changed. The sensitivity sensitivity of leptin has changed. Your body believes that you're starving. So why not store everything that you eat that day as fat? Because that would be ideal because, you know, use the, use the bare minimum resources. We have cortisol, you know, pumping away to reduce all of our stored glycogen. So anything we can store as fat, let's store as fat because that's going to protect us from famine. And then, you know, obviously you go far enough and ketones start assisting the brain and all of that other stuff. So there's, there's absolutely nothing that, that you need during the day that isn't being balanced during the night. And so how much you eat, what you feel like eating, how alert you are, how much you feel like moving, what your strength is like, what your endurance is like, what your cognitive, like, you know, problem solving, emotional skills, all of that is being set while you're asleep. I want to talk for a moment on about cardiovascular disease, because I know that there is CVD generally is worsened, or maybe, maybe a better word is accelerated with sleep deprivation. Like we, we know that when the, if you live in an area where there's time change, when it's daylight savings time and you lose an hour because the clocks fall back, there tends to be more heart attacks in the spring. There tends to be more car accidents. Um, I've heard docs like Matt Walker talk about judges handing out harsher, harsher sentences uh, on the Monday after daylight savings changes versus, you know, the Monday after the, you know, we get an hour back in the fall. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I think his work is, I think his work is great. So I think that that's also very interesting as well, where we see an increase. I think that, I think the stats are 24% increase in myocardial infarcts the day after daylight. Like for those of us that have to be at work at a certain time. So everything shifts, you know, an hour earlier, you're trying to get the kids to school an hour earlier, all of that. And then you sort of see a parallel reduction in the fall when you get that hour back. So right. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about maybe the mechanism of action, like what's happening there? Like, why do we see sleep deprivation and cardiovascular disease so entwined with each other? Yeah. So you know, basically what's happening with the cardiovascular disease, you're not taking somebody who's cardiovascularly healthy and then stressing them out by having a little less sleep. You're taking somebody who's sort of teetering on the edge anyway, right? So there, this is somebody who already has chron- you know, chronic inflammation. I, I don't know how much you talk about those things on your show, but obviously like unstable, un- unstable plaques are what, or what tend to have that, you know, and you can, or which is what tend to cause is heart, cause the heart attacks. And those can be calcified plaques, plaques, or they can be soft plaques. There's really good evidence that soft plaque itself is just heavily increased when you have a chronically stressed, stressful environment. And as you said, this is usually you know, lunch bucket Joe, who's like, you know, the time, the time clock punching guy, like running the same traffic routine to work it every day and all that stuff. So they, you know, they, they tend to have a little less, you know, life satisfaction in the morning, let's say, you know, they're, like, they're getting up when they don't feel like it. They're driving through traffic when they don't they hate feel their like job it. anyway. You know, and yeah, They're going yeah. to a job that they don't really dig that they probably wouldn't do yeah, if, they, yeah. if they didn't need the money, you know? And so, you know, when when you're taking somebody who's metabolically on the edge, you know, metabolically, physiologically on the edge, the worst thing you can do is take away sleep from them. And it appears that 
unplanned sleep disruption is worse than chronic sleep deprivation on a like a day-to-day schedule. So my guess is that the vast majority of those people who have heart attacks are already chronically sleep deprived. And you're just add you're just adding that extra tax on them. And they're waking up, you know, grumpier, less willing to work out, like less excited about getting into this day and then having to go through and now fight traffic in the dark, which is like I know that aggravated. Like when I was in the military and I had to do that, I aggravated the hell out of me to go to go to work in the dark and come home in the dark. I was like, you know, like yeah. what am I doing with my life? I so I, I can imagine you know that that being a big factor. The interesting thing, you know, what you said about the judges, William Dement, the so the, the you know the grandfather of sleep medicine, he did a really interesting study called a couples trial, where they took couples. I don't know if they're all married, but monogamous couples. And they said, you know, hey, tomorrow we're going to take care of 100% of your activities. You know, everything, you, all your obligations, we're going to take care of 100% of those. We're going to give you money. And then you and your partner can just go out and have a great day and do whatever you want to do. The only caveat is we want you to come back to the lab at the end of the day. We're going to take you in separate rooms and and talk to you. And when they do that, you know, that's a setup for a great day, right? Like, why wouldn't you just have an absolutely day, absolutely yeah. great day, especially if you're a younger couple, right? And the, you know the the one little caveat which they just kind of made a little a little mention to but didn't make a big deal out of it is that yeah you know, they're going to short sleep one of the one of the people in the couple or one of the Ooh, people in the couple twist. right so it doesn't matter which one the male the female doesn't matter when they come back at the end of the day they all say like I I want to say it was, it was really close to a hundred percent of of the reporters said. The other, you know, it was a pretty good, it was a great day, but like he wasn't quite as loving, as kind, as friendly, as communicative, as connected, you know, whatever it is they value in that connection in their relationship. It wasn't quite as good that day as it usually is. And the interesting thing is it doesn't matter which one you sleep deprive. They both feel that way. They both will say that about the other as though it was the other person's flaw. Because when we're sleep deprived, we perceive we perceive more things to be a threat, right? Higher stress hormones is more aligned with fight or flight. We're looking for threats. The higher stress hormones are higher stress hormones. We perceive more people as a threat, more people as being unfriendly, more little facial. And you know, it's like a third of a millimeter change in the angle of the corner of somebody's eye, and we start perceiving something. Whoa! Like if we know them really well, it's like whoa. What does that mean? And if that's happening, you know, in couples, yeah, that's very detrimental towards the couples. But what other research has shown, you can just show pictures of people to people when they're when they're sleep adapted and when they're sleep when they're sleep deprived. You show them the same pictures of the same people, and they will rate everybody as being more unfriendly, less likable, more angry, more you know that you know more aggressive looking. Somebody I would take caution with, and like I said. We don't have any awareness of it. And that's we just be- what a mag like amygdala overactive, like it's just not we're not suppressing the amygdala. Yeah, I mean it's, as a, much, it's, like an, it's, it's an over it's an overactive amygdala for sure. I mean, you know, the probably the, the, the entire limbic system is unbalanced, but it's an overactive amygdala because what what's our amygdala doing? It's it's warning us of threat. Friend and fall, yeah. You're right. And where does noradrenaline have its biggest effect? Right? On the amygdala. I mean that and that that's sort of 
it's sort of the adrenals of the brain, right? It's like that's the stress response of the brain is the amygdala, and it's and it's directly affecting you know the stress hormones of the body that of course obviously get to the brain as well. So I, it doesn't surprise me, you know, that people treat each other worse on the road, probably more aggressive driving. A, a really interesting stat. I haven't read any updates on it, but it's is is probably when I first started lecturing on sleep, probably ten years ago. I I found this stat that if you if you have a you know if you are or have a child between the ages of sixteen and twenty five, they're three times more likely to be killed in a drowsy driving accident than they are in an alcohol related accident. But nobody talks about that. That's insane. You know? That's insane. And, you know, other things that are insane, there's a program, there's a lobbying group called Start School Later. Pretty sure that's it. Something pretty obvious like that. Yeah. And like a 10 instead of nine or something like that. Yeah. And so, and what they did, you know, they, they're they're always pushing, you know, to try to get kids to start school later so they get more sleep because we know in adolescence, there's a shift, you know, towards the right. I know we're getting a little bit off topic, but it's kind of tied in. You get... You, you get this this phase shift where they want to go to bed later and they want to wake up earlier. doesn't matter if they're in a lark or an owl, like just whatever their set point is, it's going to be shifted until a little later in the day. And then a lot of high school kids have to start school at 7.15. And if they ride the bus, that means they have to be up by probably six and they're probably not going to bed till midnight or one. So, and they need nine to 12 hours of sleep depending on how like athletic and active they are in their age but they need even a lot though they more think th- even though they think they know everything right right <laughs> they really don't they don't my 13 year old i'm like you know it's so amazing in your 13 years you know more than i do in yeah. my 40s like good like good for you it's amazing but he i'm starting to see in him just that beginning shift where he's wanting to push the nighttime mm-hmm. like wanting to stay up a little bit later it's, it's very interesting to observe yeah Mark Mark Twain had a great quote that said some I won't get it exactly right but he, he said when I was 18 my my father was such an imbecile I could hardly stand to be around him and then by the time I was 25 I was amazed at how much the old man had learned <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god that's amazing I love that's that That's perfect. <laughs> perfect perfect explanation for that It's perfect for pa- parents of teenagers Oh gosh I love that so, okay. so this this organization funded some research where they went to private schools where they had some control, and they started school later. And guess what happened? <laughs> like they only started school, I think, ninety minutes later. It might have it might have been as short as forty five minutes later, but it wasn't huge. Lower truancy, lower behavioral problems. The entire school had a higher GPA, and every single sports team had the best record they had ever had wow and they had and they had fewer injuries than they'd ever had and so this i mean there is there is zero like that's that's a grand example of daylight savings right that's a year-long example of that like how much better and that's not that's still not even adequate and the sad thing like like we know i think most people know now but you know definitely healthcare practitioners know that the the prefrontal cortex isn't fully formed until you're 25 and the prefrontal cortex well i mean as late as 25 for especially for men but no probably no earlier than 21 
the prefrontal cortex is deter- that's the primary determinant of how well you're going to do in the world, right? Because that's your impulse control, that's your simulator, that's the thing that allows you to Planning, solve complex problems, future, to f- yeah. try to figure out the future that you want and what's most likely to happen and with the decision tree of four things. If I did that one versus this one, and like to be able to think through that and plan and schedule and you know set goals and have ambition and stick with programs and things like all of that's prefrontal cortex, that willpower, everything's in there. And we are sleep depriving our kids while that's forming. Like the primary time we're sleep depriving them is the primary time that's, that's thick, you know, that's forming. And I think that's what happens with the Marines, you know, because you send a, that is total tangent. You got to keep me on topic or I'll do this all day. The, you know, you send a Marine in when he's 18 years old and then the next four years you teach him, he's been doing everything wrong. He needs to cut his hair shorter. He needs to wear his clothes like this. He needs to walk this way. He needs to think. And, and they, that saying, once a Marine, always a Marine, you know, it's like they're, they're super strict about, about changing people's lifestyles and belief systems. And that sticks with people their whole lives. And that, it's because that's when the prefrontal cortex is forming, you know, and they're yeah. coming out of there with like that, that map of the world. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because any parent with a with a toddler, you know, two year old, three year old, four year old, if that child misses a nap, we know right away changes in behavior, changes in affect, even trying to get them to sleep when they've been, when they're overtired is a nightmare. And yet we, we forget about that when they're 10, 15, 16, 19, you know, it's, it's all, it's all of a sudden we understand, we understand it intuitively with babies, but we forget about it. And maybe it's because we don't understand that there's that full maturation. Well, we do we do the same thing to ourselves as adults, right? Yeah, yeah. One, like we're, we're surprised that our life isn't working out well when we're not, when we're sleep deprived. Right? And it doesn't matter if they're missing a nap or just missing a night of sleep, a good night of sleep. And the other thing we do is if I use this example all the time, when I talk about bedtime routines, so you're getting somebody ready for bed, right? And you, do you take a three-year-old toddler who's sitting there banging trucks together and just like pick him up and throw him in a bed and turn off the light and walk out of the room? Like what's the chances of success there? Zero. Right. And so what do we do? It's like, okay, we need to dim the lights down. We need to quit this rough housing because we need to disengage the brain or interaction with the world. And instead of go over here and work on your puzzles or like look through these picture books or whatever, do that. And then I put them in a bath because I need to drop their body temperature a little bit, right? So nobody takes a 99-degree bath. You know, you give a kid an 80-degree bath, so their body temperature drops, and then you put them in onesies, and you put powder all over them, so you're decreasing the sensory on their skin, and then you put them in a bed, and you sit next to them, and you make them feel safe and comfortable and warm, and you have low light, and you read them a book, and not some wild adventurous mm-hmm. book, but the book that they already know that they can predict, spe- you know, especially something like Dr. Seuss that has a cadence to it and you lull them into sleep. But as adults, we think, well, I'm going to work on my computer till 959 on this really intense work project. And I'm going to go lay down in bed at 10 o'clock and I'll be asleep by 1015. No, you won't. Like you have to get prepared. Your brain has to be prepared for going to sleep. And again, we ignore it. We see it in kids. We ignore it in our adult selves. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. 
I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount, that is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. Well, what are some of the, I mean, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about some of the changes in, in menopause and, and perimenopause a bit, but I want to, what are some of the things that you, you've mentioned a couple of things there, temperature manipulation with the bath, what, with the child, making them feel safe, decreasing their sensory input. What are some things that you like to recommend as an evening ritual, let's say for an adult? I know that there's been, you know, there's a big resurgence maybe of saunas and hot, you know, hot baths and, and things of that nature right before mm-hmm. bed, because we have that rebound where we can Right. We heat the body up, as you as you mentioned, and then sort of we have this rebound where we lower our body temperature, our core body temperature anyway, which helps to facilitate, you know, that transition into into those lights, non-REM stages of sleep. What are some things that you like to recommend or maybe that you do yourself that you found to be incredibly effective across the board? Yeah. So so I always tell people, you know, sleep rituals or sleep hygiene is, is sometimes called, you know, I, I guess a sleep ritual is a combination of the sleep hygiene tools you want to use. You know, there's a thousand variations. You can go on the internet. Of, you know, do it this way, do it that way. I always break it down. And there's only there's only three things that are involved, right? So, our and we can go into detail on any of these. I'll just cover them super lightly. But you know, there, our 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 brain uses the blue light and the environment to tell us whether or not the sun is up. Right? My guess is because the sky's blue. I don't know. Like, can't prove that again. But you take away the blue light. Some ganglion in the back of your eyes have nothing to do with vision. Sense that, and then they trigger that pathway that circuitously goes through the SCN and back down and back, and eventually causes the pineal gland to secrete melatonin, which is, as Matt Walker says, I I steal this one from him all the time, but I talked to him about it. I told him I steal it, and then I always give him credit. It's the starter pistol, right? And so it initiates hundreds of cascades of events. And those cascades never stop, right? Because the balance of neurotransmitters, neuropeptide cell signals, all that stuff changes throughout the entire night different regions of the brain have different concentrations it's not one bath it's like all cells are changing what they're doing and one of the things that gets secreted is a neuropeptide called gaba gaba then binds to receptors in the in the neocortex right so our motor sensory and a prefrontal cortex and this is an inhibitory neurotransmitter so yeah and and that lowers that lowers the resting potential of all the cells and it makes it harder for us to fire those cells so that's why we're not paying attention to our vision. Our visual system still works perfectly well, but we just aren't processing it. We aren't paying attention to it. We aren't interacting. We aren't moving around in reaction to the world because one thing we're not sensing anything to react to, but also like you know, our motor cortex is dampened down, which is why you don't need REM to not sleep much because the whole motor cortex is dampened down. So you're just not going to move as much while you're asleep without the paralysis involved with REM. And then your your body temperature goes down. And it all makes perfect sense. All you have to do is think about evolutionarily, go back 500 years. What happened when the sun went down? It got dark. 
there's no way around it, right? It got dark and it got cold and it became much more unsafe to be running around as a human being that can't see very well in the dark. That actually one of the worst with, you know, without guns, like we're one of the worst predators on the planet. Like I couldn't fight a raccoon and not get severely injured, right? And it's like, like we are not great predators. And so we would tuck away and whatever shelter we had, you maybe have a campfire, you know, which is amazingly low in blue light. You know, there's not a whole lot of radiance coming from that. And maybe have a campfire, sit around, tell some stories and like get ourselves feeling safe and warm. And, you know, and then of course the, the temperature goes down because the sun was the only source of heat in those days, minus whatever little fire you had. So not, you know, the only real heat came from the sun. So the earth got cooler. You got cooler. Those are the three things involved. And you can overcome all of those, right? You can put artificial light in your eyes. And when 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 your bro- when your brain's flooded with GABA, if you decide to go to the gym and work out, or you decide to go out to a bar with your friends and you know chase members of the opposite sex or like whatever you you know whatever you want to do, you want to watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you want to do like wild wild things, like your stress hormones will come up enough, and you can completely block that GABA effect. Then of course we can control our body temperature with clothing and you know all of our HVAC systems now. So all the sleep ritualization is built out of those three those three components and however you go around those. Now, people have asked me about ice baths to lower your body temperature too much, right? That's too cold. It causes a big stress response. And as you know, like you just said about the saunas, you can get a rebound the other direction and your body temperature will actually go up. I have seen people with success with saunas, not super hot, not super long. So not like 200 degrees for an hour or something, but like... 160 degrees for 20 minutes or something. And then they go take, they usually rinse off in the shower and then they'll get a big rebound, a big crash. But you can do it with just a regular shower. You know, some people can take really hot showers. Like my wife can take a shower that I can't even get within five feet of without burning my skin. But, you know, so you take a, you take a lukewarm shower. You know, again, I wouldn't take a cold shower because you're going to spike stress hormones with a cold shower, but you can do it with just like a lukewarm shower or a lukewarm bath, or just turn your, turn your AC down. You know, mm-hmm. the ideal sleeping temperature of your environment seems to be somewhere between 64 and 67 degrees kind of vary on people. I live in, I live in Texas and outside Austin and it's 110 degrees all the time. So, you know, I, I spend a lot on air conditioning because I know how important it is <laughs> for sleep. You love your air conditioning, yeah. <laughs> but but the most important part of the sleep ritualization is to understand, you know, what I always tell people before they start building out their program, they say first you have to first you have to value sleep. Like you I can sit here and talk about it all day, but you need to go prove it to yourself that sleep's the most important thing in your world. And you can go on a PubMed, Google Scholar, something like that, something credible, and just type in sleep and anything you care about. And then just read till you're terrified and you go, okay. I really need to sleep, right? Sleep um, and anything you care about. That's really anything funny. you care about. Yeah. <laughs> and then just read about it until you're like, oh my God, I'm destroying my goals. This thing yeah. I care about, I'm making myself worse at it. Yeah. And then I know something that my team's talked about sharing with, with your audience is I have this, this stressless sleep guide, which is, it, it's almost embarrassing that this is the most powerful thing I do with my clients. I have, I have clients that I do sort of like, you know, the magic health makeover in one year, people have traded their health for wealth for 20 or 30 years. And now they want to really get in great shape. And so I work with them for a year and I do sleep, nutrition, exercise, and stress mitigation. But the most powerful thing I do is this simple little worksheet. And basically it's like you set an alarm when it's time to get ready for going to bed. And that 
alarm is equally as important and unflexible as or inflexible, whichever that whatever word that's supposed to be. And it, it, that's the same importance as the alarm to wake up and get going in the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just we talked about earlier, like your brain repairing and preparing decreasing stress hormones, increasing anabolic hormones, fixing the balance of your brain and all that. So the most prepared you're ever going to be to handle the task and stressors of your life is after you've had a great night's sleep. Any other time during the day, you're not as good, right? It doesn't mean you can't do things, but the most prepared you'll ever be is when you first when you first wake up, once you've fully wakened. So maybe 30 minutes to 90 minutes after you wake up, depending on you individually, that's the most, that's the best you that exists and you can get through your tasks. So I say you write, you take a piece of paper, you draw a line down the side, down the, straight down the middle on one side, you write down to worry or just, I'm sorry, to, your to-do list, like everything you, everything you need to do for as far out as you're likely to worry. And that varies greatly. Like I don't worry probably more than a day ahead my wife six months ahead, right? It all, like everybody's different. So your to-do list, everything that you're likely to think about while you're trying to go to sleep. And then your to-worry list is things that you don't have any control over, but you don't want to forget to worry about them because if you don't think about them, you just, you'll think about them because you know you're not thinking about them. And then you say, this list, like that's my life's ambition, right? Like this is the list that I need to have a fulfilling life. You know, at least these things are bare minimum to, that have to be done. And the best I'm ever going to be is after I've had a full night's sleep. And that's when I should handle these things. And so you set that alarm clock. You do your bedtime ritual. I'd say preferably an hour before bed. You you do your nighttime ritual. You get in bed. And then you don't have any access to any light or any anything. You don't know what time it is. You don't look at clocks or watches or cell phones or anything like that. And then you lay in bed. And you relax and you meditate, you do breath work, progressive muscle relaxation, whatever it is you like to do to relax. And you just lay there and if you can have random thoughts, but just make sure they're pleasant. And then if anything in your mind pops up, if you start worrying about anything, you start planning, you go, oh, that's on my list. I'm going to handle that when I get up in the morning when I'm the best I'll ever be. And then you just lay there until you fall asleep. And then when you wake up in the middle of the night, you need to go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom and lay back in bed and don't look at the clock. It doesn't matter what time it is. You're not getting out of bed until that morning alarm clock goes off. And then you lay in bed again and you breathe and you relax. And if your alarm clock's going to go off 30 minutes later, maybe you wait, maybe you laid in bed the whole time, right? And you never went back to sleep, but you, you know, say you meditated for 30 minutes. So you got seven and a half hours of sleep and you meditated for 30 minutes. Now your alarm clock goes off. It's time to go. If you wake up in the middle of the night, and you lay there and you don't feel sleepy, but you meditate and you relax and your alarm clock's not going to go off for four hours, you're going to fall back asleep. And it doesn't matter when you're going to fall back asleep. It doesn't matter. Is that is, Did it fall back asleep in 15 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour? The best thing to do is to not stress about the fact that you're not sleeping and just say, the next best thing that I can do is lay in this bed and relax and reduce my stress hormones and just meditate and be calm and let my body recover to the best of its ability. And I'll sleep as much as I sleep. And then what I find with that is to set the ritual up isn't that hard and everybody can do that in a day, but to convince yourself that you really shouldn't be thinking about those things on your list because the best time to handle those is when you wake up. That's the part that needs to, you know, you need to align yourself with, and like, once all that gels with you, then it be like, it becomes the most powerful thing ever. And it gives people permission to sleep. It gets rid of so many social 
inaccuracies and and flaws in and and our thinking that allows people to sleep better. And like I said, it's it's honestly the most powerful thing I do, despite doing hormones and peptides and stem cells and hyperbaric and like everything in the world. I do all this stuff, and the most powerful thing I do is that little worksheet. Well, I love I love that so much for so many reasons. One, I think that there's almost sleep anxiety. Like we have these these orthorexic tendencies. So if someone wakes up overnight, it actually bridges really well into sort of the next topic, which is sleep changes in menopause and perimenopause. But you know, mm. women in their 40s and 50s, by far the number one thing that I hear from them is my sleep has changed. I can't sleep pro- the way that I used to. And right. I feel like my whole life is falling apart because of it. And I think that when there is those, you know, whether it's a, an inability to initiate or maintain sleep, so you're wired and tired and you're, you know, you're that monkey mind is sort of is running. I love that exercise about sort of dividing the page in half and saying, I'll deal with it tomorrow. That's the, the best that I'm going to be. But if you wake up overnight and then, you know, that monkey mind starts going again, I think that it's. Yeah. It's lovely to give yourself the permission to say, you know what, the next best thing I can be doing right now other than sleeping is just lying here. Yeah. I, I just think that's so gentle. And I think it gives us permission. And, you know, to your point, you'll fall asleep again, yeah. but without revving the system, without sort of like putting, you know, you know, putting the foot on the on the gas pedal, let's say, and blowing a gasket, because you're like, oh my God, I'm I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sleeping. I'm not doing it right. I'm not, I'm going to fail. My aura ring is going to tell me my readiness score is terrible tomorrow, you know, or whatever. Right. So I, I just love that idea of the, this is the best thing. And then the next best thing is like what I'm doing right now. Yeah. And the, and the number one, you know, you, you, what you're alluding to, I'm sure you already know is the number one reason people don't sleep is because they're worried about not being able to sleep. Yeah. And we, and we call that psychophysiologic insomnia. So my my stress hormones are going up because I'm worried that I'm not going to be able to sleep. And at some point I've revved myself up enough where I've convinced myself the smartest thing to do is just get up right now because I feel wide awake. And even though it's 3.30 in the morning, I'm just going to get up and I'm going to start working. And then I'm not going to take any naps or anything today. I'm going to work really hard and keep going. And then when I come home tonight, I'll be really sleepy and I'll just sleep. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> now you're going to be, your stress hormones are going to be so much higher and you're going to just keep doing that. Oh, but that's what, I mean, that was, that's what was happening with the seals when I first started working with them. You know, they, they've reported exactly that, you know, they wake up three, four o'clock in the morning and just like, I'm not going to go back to sleep. So I'm just going to go burn it down today. When I come home tonight, I'll be tired. And I'd say, you know, how long you've been trying that? They'd be like, three years i'm like keep going man like tonight's the night i'm sure it's gonna gonna happen eventually just keep going yeah yeah as far as menopause of course i i I know you know probably your audience knows that luteal surge is you know it's just a it's a hell of a metabolic stressor you know it it causes you know especially when you don't have a big ovarian response to it or a testicular response to it for men and that that luteal surge actually, as all women report, will cause that huge stress response and that huge vasodilation, and you get that that flushed, hot, sweaty, stressed out feeling. And those are and those are stress hormones, right? And the and you literally have to like reprogram past like enough stress hormones to be awake, and now you have to reprogram past that, you know to get back down to where you were when you went to sleep, which is almost an impossible thing to do. So you get poor quality of sleep that, and then that stressor usually leads to, you know, an HBTA dysregulation between the brain and the adrenals. And now when you have that dysregulation going, a lot of times you'll get excessive cortisol throughout your day. 
like the area under the curve for the 24 hours will be higher when the cortisol is high. It affects, you know, the conversion of T3 to T4. And now you have a lot of reverse T3, which is not metabolically active. And now you sort of have a thyroid disorder going on, a little bit of hypothyroidism, which that's also making you fatigued. Anytime you're fatigued, your body compensates when you need, when you're trying to force yourself, when you're grinding your way through something, all you're doing is raising stress hormones to provide yourself more catabolic resources. Again, you're using your body as the fuel source to push past it. And now you have appetite dysregulation. You have obviously, you know, cravings towards highly, you know, high, high glycemic index foods and high glycemic load foods. You know, once you get in there, now you're really, now you're dealing with insulin insulin sensitivity issues. When your brain's measuring blood glucose, the rate of change is the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter the total. So if you go from 400 to 300 really quick, you're still way high, right? You're still like three times higher than you need to be. But that change is basically perceived as your body as a starvation cue. And now you're going to, your stress hormones are going to rev up and you're going to wake up and you're going to be hungry because your body's convinced itself that it's, you know, that it's starving. You know, my, my first year of residency was actually in, in OB Gyne and I worked with you know, the guy who he, he was my mentor in hormone replacement therapy. I actually started with women doing hormone replacement therapy and then graduated into men later. And now I pretty much exclusively do men and my wife does the women. But, you know, one of the things that, that he always taught is that, you know, a large percentage of the female testosterone levels actually come from the ovaries that the ovaries are producing testosterone and it's all of the aromatase enzymes and the, and the stromal cells that are surrounding that, that are converting that, you know, that testosterone into estrogen, causing your basal estrogen levels. And so that, that means that the, that most of the vast majority of your testosterone in your bloodstream is coming from your ovaries, being able to produce more testosterone than then the aromatase can convert into estrogen. And so as soon as the ovaries start to slow down a little bit, the first thing you lose is testosterone. And testosterone, obviously, you know, is the primary sex hormone for both men and women. And so it has all sorts of cognitive effects. It has all sorts of appetite regulating effects. But something that's way, way underappreciated is how what a great anti-inflammatory testosterone is. I mean, it, it is one of, like, when I when I take somebody who's testosterone deficient, man or woman, and I just get their testosterone levels to where they should be. They'll go from, you know, I'll go from an HSCRP of 2.3 to like 0.02 unmeasurable. And that's the only intervention I did. And then there's other forms of testosterone that convert that are slightly more, but it's still kind of the baseline for that. And as you know, you, you can't just affect one hormone. You can't just say, oh, my estrogen's off. Well, everything else is really right. Everything's coming from cholesterol and everything's ending up way over here and like, DHT, estradiol, estrone, estriol, like there, you know, there, there's all these, all these downstream effects. And then there's all these intermediates in between that are biologically active. And so it's way too complex to say for sure. Well, it's, you know, because it's this metabolite you're leading to this and whatever. And it's like, you know, predicting the weather or something like that. There's so many variables involved, but you know, the, the underappreciation of the fact that if you change, you, you under, you change adrenal hormones you change all the sex hormones. You change one sex hormone, you change all the sex hormones and the adrenal hormones. Like every, like, obviously we divided our body into systems as a way to learn it. Our body doesn't perform as though it has systems. Like everything is interacting with everything. And so 
you know, when women are, you know, when women are going through menopause, I know that, you know, I know that the women's healthcare initiative trial, like screwed, screwed up yes, yeah. the social belief system around hormones, which is an absolute tragedy, but I know there's a lot of resistance towards it. And I honestly, I don't like, I don't know what to do besides that. So I, I mean, if, if I'm, if I'm approached by someone, a female who wants, who knows she's menopausal, perimenopausal, and it's affecting her quality of life and her sleep, and she doesn't want to do hormone replacement therapy, like, I don't know, all I, all I can really do is optimize lifestyle and see, see what, see what happens from there. You know, my, my wife, like I said, she specializes in women and she tried, she's tried, you know, tons of different, you know, tons of different supplements, you know, that people have, have raved about, you know, and then there's, you know, there's, you know, postulates that if you do HIT training, well, that increases your testosterone, that can convert to estrogen. If, you know, if you do saunas, you can increase growth hormone and that, you know, you can increase growth hormone. I think it also, there's also, I think research says you can increase testosterone. Mm-hmm. Again, growth hormone will improve your sleep. That's one of the things I didn't mention, but that's obviously during deep sleep, growth hormone is secreted as well. And, you know, whether, you know, if, if the sauna is helping great, you know, I don't know exactly how it's happening, how it's helping, but I, I really think, you know, hormone replacement therapy is like the only thing that's really ever going to make you feel great again. And then I know once you go through years and years and years of that, because of receptor downregulation, you, you know, the effects, the effects of the hormone imbalance doesn't seem to impact women as much as far as their mood and activities and all that. But obviously, they're losing muscle mass really quickly. They're losing bone density really quickly. Their cognitive functioning isn't as great. Their basal body temperature isn't as high. Their appetite regulation is a little off. But some women just prefer that and say, hey, I'm going to stick with it. And I wish I had a solution to that. The more you can sleep, the more hormones you'll produce, Like the or the better quality of sleep you get, the more hormones you'll produce. But if your luteal surge is waking you up, I don't, I don't really have a solution past hormone replacement therapy. And is it, do you think that the, the problem with the sleep is, is also in part the dropping of progesterone? So you're not getting that GABA, oh. that inhibitory effect. You, you know, you're talking about the light, GABA and like yeah. cooling. Do we That's, think that pro- interestingly, proge- progesterone, you know, which is r- usually really insignificant in men, progesterone will actually help men sleep as well. It helps them fall asleep. I, I don't know that it helps keep them asleep, but yeah, I mean, I, I think again, you know, every, every hormone's interacting with every other hormone and then any protracted period of hormone deficiency or hormone excess is changing receptor densities, which, you know, can take four to six weeks to kind of realign. And so it, it gets really, it gets really messy. And like I said, I don't, I don't know what to do besides re- replacing the hormones. Yeah. And I think for, you know, for women in, in perimenopause, in, in many cases, they're like a moving target because one month they feel this way and then the next month they feel a different way. Uh, right. Particularly in late perimenopause, when we start to see some of those, you know, oscillations in, in estradiol, as you were saying, and then there's more right. estrone that's present. I think that that can be a bit more complicated. But I, to your point, I we actually just did. I can't remember how. I just did a whole review of the W the Women's Health Initiative and the subjects and how they manipulated the data and all the all the things. Uh, the disservice, truly, to women because I don't. The sad thing about it is I don't think that they'll ever be a study that large done again the well amount of money that was put it, into it the amount yeah. of money and then the fanfare that came from it right because it was is funded by wyeth which i think i know that's been converted to something else that i don't know if that's pfizer now but i know Wyeth became another 
pharmaceutical company. And they put a billion dollars into that, right? Yeah, yeah. And then they were giving Provera, right, which was banned in every country in the world except America and I think France uh, because it was a known carcinogen. It wasn't progesterone, it was a progestin. And, and of course, it was, you know, distilled horse urine as the as the estrogen source instead of bioidentical estrogen. And, you know, and of course, you know, they they fudged with absolute risk versus relative risk and made it look like this huge number. And it's just like everything you see in the media now, it's like you come out with this huge fanfare, this like this headline that shocks and awes everybody. And then you find out you're wrong, which the Women's Healthcare Initiative has been completely destroyed and discredited at this point. But you find out you're wrong. And two years later, you in the back section of one newspaper, there's a paragraph that says, oh, basically, we're wrong about all that. Sorry. And nobody ever reads that. You know, nobody it never gets that same kind of fanfare again. And unfortunately, you know, that's true just in the world. That's just the way society works and the way everything works, whether it's medicine or politics or yeah. education or you know whatever cultural stuff at all the first big shot gets all the attention yeah to your point with the hormone replacement therapy testosterone for women still very controversial like unless if a woman is going into the you know her doctor's office saying i want to have a baby right, right and my numbers are off it's right. very hard for her to get trt whereas yeah. for men and I, I say this in jest a little bit, but you know, he might say, you know what, I think I'm like low libido, like I think I'm my my libido isn't the same way, a sexual desire and my libido is lowered. And he he walks out with a script, you right. know? And so it, it's much harder for women, I think, even if she walks in and says and says, I, I think my libido's changing, it's like, well, buckle up, buttercup. You know, that's yeah. what happens when you're 40 or 45 or 50. So I do think the WHI really did a disservice to women long-term because there are many, many women I have in my support desk that we hear all the time. Women are like, my, my doctor is refusing to put me on HRT. They, it's, she, they think that it's going to give me, and, and certainly you have to, there's bio-individual risk, right? So you, you know, you want to think about certain predispositions to certain cancers and on all of that. And we do see a slight, a slight increase in I think it's the first year after taking HRT. We do see an increase in cardiovascular incident. I don't know. I forget the number. I think, exactly. I think it was. I think it was one in ten thousand though. And then they started yeah. with all really like women way past menopause. You know, I don't right. think that risk exists when you go early. You know, and, and I don't. I mean, I don't pretend to know everything and want to discredit. You know, all of the. You know, all sort of the known data out there, but. You know, there as as we know, you know, as anybody who keeps up the research goes, you know, like every every two to five years, the research flip flops 180 degrees on all kinds of things. And the way and and the way I deal with that, the way I approach that, because I don't know the answer either, right? I mean, there's you know, there you know, we we're talking about hormones at like the hundred thousand foot level. You know, you can you go down. There's people who've studied one hormone their entire life, and they can tell you about you know, all of the different cell signaling that goes on with each hormone at different times of the day and different tissues. And like, okay, that like, that's, and that's just one hormone. And now you add all the hormones in there and you add like, I mean, it's, it's way too complex for anybody to figure out. So just like I do with sleep, I, right. I say, what's, what's the healthiest way to sleep? The he healthiest way to sleep is how you evolved to sleep. And we know that's true, right? We know you can fight circadian rhythm and you can sleep eight hours a night but and do it on working a night shift and you're sleeping during the day and working at night. 
and you might maybe you feel okay and maybe you, you perform okay but you die 12 to 14 years younger for a reason and you know that that's stat has been around forever chronic you know chron chronic use of sleep drugs chronic insomnia or chronic shift work you die over a decade earlier well there you know there's a reason for that right so i say the best way to sleep is to approximate your way you evolved to sleep. The best way to eat is approximate the way you evolved to eat, right? There are no donuts. There were, no, you know, there are no Twinkies. There was, there, there are no mocha lattes 200 years ago, right? Like people ate food. They, they ate animals and they ate, you know, fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds. And, you know, and once we started grinding grains and making flour, like, you know, that's still not the best choice, but, you know, if that's just, and an appropriate ratio in your life. But you look at, you know, how did a hunter gather or eat live? That's how we evolved. That's how we evolved to eat. And so I do the, I do the same thing with hormones. Like when do you perform your best? When is your disease risk the lowest, right? That we know the older we get, essentially what old means is that you're more susceptible to any disease and you're more susceptible to die from anything. So who are the most robust people in the world? They're what 25 ish right a little younger a little bit older like that's when everybody is physically at their prime so i just reapproximate that you know with everybody like i the every everything that i can manage in somebody whether i'm managing it through lifestyle or you know an intervention that i'm making everything that i can do to approximate that 25 year old sort of uh, metabolic and hormonal panel to where if i handed that to somebody and said you know who do you think this is like describe the person i want to i want my colleagues to say you know, it's a 25 to 30 year old healthy male, right? Like that, that's what the, that's what the panel should look like. And, you know, the, does, does exposure to estrogen increase your risk for breast cancer later on in life? I don't know. Like that's, I've seen that go both ways. I've seen the research on that flip-flop. I can tell you one thing though, older women have lower estrogen levels and older women have breast cancer. Well, that's the, that's the, that's the funny thing, isn't it? It's like, you young, don't think, yeah. Same, same thing with men. It's like, yeah. who gets prostate cancer, young men or old men? And there is for the longest time, they're saying, well, if you give men testosterone, you're going to cause prostate cancer. Mm. Absolutely not. Now we know for a fact now I've seen, uh, you know, I've seen the research rolling in over the last 10, 15 years. They're, they're not making much fanfare about it, but it's true that if you have high estradiol levels as a man and low testosterone levels, you have more, you're more susceptible to, to prostate cancer. What happens is you have a prostate sensitive, you, you have a prostate tumor already and it's androgen sensitive and you give somebody testosterone and then it reveals itself. I think that's the most likely thing happening with women too. Like they already have a small nidus of cancer growing and it's estrogen sensitive and you increase their estrogen levels and then it reveals itself. It grows faster. And is that a bad thing? Like, you know, I think that kind of, so it's kind of the earlier you start replacing that. I think women should probably start having their testosterone replaced around 35. That's, that tends, you know, one of the, one of the first sort of signals of when, one of the first signs of testosterone deficiency in women is cellulite. So kind of as soon as you start getting that, if you aren't really putting on weight and you're getting cellulite, that's the reason because testosterone sets the neuromuscular tension of smooth muscle. And so, the little muscle pillars that are connecting the skin to the fascia relax and you get, <laughs> you, it gets a little longer and you get little dimples around your skin. So that is, that is a crazy stat because I've, I've read that like 90 plus percent of women have cellulite. Like most women have it. Yeah. And is that, so are you saying that? The if you put on enough weight, there's nothing <laughs> like, right. Because, because you have, 
you have what they call them pili, like you have the you have the little muscular pillars that are contracting, right? And that's what yeah. goosebumps are, right? Like they, they can squeeze in and move your skin. And then you have just like connective tissue, essentially collagen, just attaching it as well. And so if you if you change the length of the muscular regions of it, you get, you know, you get a change in level of skin and you get cellulite from that. And the most common cause of that, like if you get, if you build up enough fat to where you're just sort of stressing past the collagen connections, then there's nothing you can really do, right? Yeah. And that's uh, when the like, fat is sort of infarct. It's sort of, I guess, hemorrhaging. I don't yeah. Know if that's the right word. But the, the, coll- the collagen won't stretch as far as the muscles will. So even if you have adequate testosterone and you have enough pressure, that muscle will elongate and it'll be the same as if you had a low testosterone level and it just decreases the neuromuscular tension and the muscle relaxes. And, you know, all it takes is a, probably what, a half a millimeter or something to move and you can see them, you know, the imperfection in the skin. Hmm. My best advice is grow your glutes, ladies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the more the more power you have in your booty, you know, it's going to, you know, obviously there's lots of cognitive benefits and lots of, you know, metabolic benefits, but we're also going to help sort of smooth out the skin that that's on your, that's on your behind. Yeah. The most muscle, the more muscle you can hold on to and the more metabolically active that muscle is because you're exercising it. That, and that's the key. That's the key because that, that, that determines everything that we're talking about. Right. Yeah. I know know, we touched a little bit on ATP. You know, one of the, one of the primary reasons, and I can usually tell, like if I, without even seeing a woman, if she tells me her pattern of sleep of her of insomnia is that she falls asleep right away and then wakes up like two hours later and can't go back to sleep. I know that woman has a lot of muscle mass and she's working out hard. And here's why, because that's the chronic, like that's the most common way that, that a man gets, I I shouldn't say I know that, but odds are that's true about her. And your clinical experience. Based on my clinical experience. And, Mm -hmm. and here's, here's why I believe that is men maintain about, you know, men hold on to about 30% more muscle mass than women. And so if you take men, a man and a woman who's approximately the, say the same height and, and bone structure, and the man has 30% more muscle with a brain that's roughly about the same size. So that, that guy's producing a whole lot more adenosine, right? Because metabolically active muscle. And if he's using, especially if he's exercising, and one of the things that happens when we exercise, I mean, there's other things going on, but it, one of the simple pathways is that, you know, you're, you're producing more adenosine, right? You're breaking, you're breaking down more ATP and adenosine is what causes the sleep pressure. So when there's enough adenosine in our brain, our brain receptors bind to the adenosine and go, Hey, we're overusing ourselves. We're damaging ourselves. It's time to crash. Like let's lay down and go to sleep. And we know like in anybody's experiences, if you try to stay awake for 36 hours or 48 hours, I mean, you could, you could lay down on, on a hundred degree day on, a bed of rocks and fall asleep because you're just so damn tired. That that fatigue is primarily just the adenosine zone. Your brain needs to shut down, and then that's what gets you know you know that's what gets re- replenished in that first deep sleep cycle when you flush out all the waste products and you get all the cellular mag- activity revved revved back up in the brain. You convert all that adenosine back to ATP. And now, if you're you know your stress hormones are high enough already, and that's usually again why people don't sleep is that's why they're waking up hormones. that two hours later. So after whether- that first sleep cycle, yeah. when they go back, you know, when they go back from from the end of their REM cycle, when they start going back down to stage two, they go through stage one and they wake up, you know, and they go, oh, I, I have a hard time going back to sleep. 
women in general, if, if they don't have a lot of muscle mass, if they don't work out, and this happens, you know, it's, it's the same as true with men who don't have a lot of muscle mass and don't work out, more common to women, though women tend to not be able to fall asleep first. They get in bed and they just take them two to three hours to fall asleep, and then they usually sleep through the night. And part of that, I believe, is the adenosine pathways. And then a big part of it is just the the, pers- the personality characteristics of men versus women, and that yeah. women are more nurturing, more into relationships, more concerned about other people. And so they spend their whole day thinking about things other than themselves. And then when they lay in bed, it's kind of their first, a lot of women, you know, busy, especially a busy mom who's working and, and raising children, like kind of the first time they ever get to worry and think about themselves is when they lay down in bed. And so they need, they need that sleepless sleepless stress guide more than anybody (laughs) yeah all right well we'll make sure that that's that is in the show notes we do we will have that for you it's a clickable link and it's all there and i wanted to talk about sleep remedies and i said this to you in the pre-chat i use that term you know intentionally because you do have a product called sleep remedy but before we get to it i wanted to talk just about some of the the ot some of the typical remedies or over-the-counter medications that people use when, let's say, the time changes or they're flying across time zones or they're just having a bout of insomnia and they really need, they have a big day tomorrow or whatever. And I thought we might start with Benadryl. This is something that we have on hand in the house. I hate it, but I have, one of my sons has... um, allergies. So we always have it sort of just there in case something happens, but pe- but he gets really drowsy. If we've ever had to use it, if the, he's had accidental, you know, he's taken in peanuts or something right? and we've had to use it. He goes right to bed. Like he's just floppy. And so I know a lot of people will use that as, as a proxy for falling asleep. Yeah. Um, speak a little bit about what Benadryl is doing and why I mean, I have strong opinions about it as a, yeah. as as a as a tool or a strategy for initiating sleep, but I'll let you expand on your thoughts on Benadryl as a sleep tool. Yeah, so there there are several uh, weight promoting neurotransmitters in our brain. Just just meaning, you know, biochemistry that that makes your brain believe that it's time to be awake and alert. And you know, of course, we we've, we've talked about cortisol and epinephrine, norepinephrine, norepinephrine being sort of adrenaline for the brain and, and kind of the revving the neurological activity and, and cortisol kind of determining how, how alert you feel like you should be. Adrenaline more kind of how fast everything's moving. So one of the weight promoting neurotransmitters is histamine. And that just means that, you know, the more of that that's in your brain, the more alert you're going to feel. Uh, just like the more norepinephrine in your brain, the more alert you're going to feel. The more cortisol in your brain, the more alert you're going to feel. And serotonin as well. Dopamine is an interesting one. I've seen kind of research on both sides of that. But so when you take an antihistamine, all you're all you're doing is you're taking away one of the weight promoting neurotransmitters. So it's it's sort of a trick because you know what ordinarily happens, like I said, you know, melatonin's the starter pistol that starts hundreds of cascades. And one of the cascades that happens is you produce less histamine. <laughs> you know, another one of the cascades that happens is that your serotonin becomes melatonin. And so you're essentially reducing serotonin, which is another weight promoting neurotransmitter. Of course, you're decreasing cortisol, epinephrine, and norepinephrine, which are also decreasing alertness of the brain. And then, like we said earlier, the GABA is coming in and slowing down or lowering the action potential and making it harder to fire every neuron in your neocortex. And since we're going to get there anyway, I'll just throw this in there. The 
all of the sleep drugs that you get and whether that's first generation like benzodiazepines, Valium and Xanax and so forth, or you're talking about the Z drugs, which is sort of the second generation of benzodiazepine really. And what they, those are GABA analogs. So they're they're molecules and all the pharmaceutical industry, whether it's over the counter or prescription, all the pharmaceutical industry does the same thing is they find a mechanism to exploit and they go, okay, well, this is one of the things involved in sleep and we can make a molecule that will bind a GABA receptor, but instead of having the same effect of a GABA receptor, it'll have a hundred times the effect of a GABA molecule binding that. And then we'll really slow down that neocortex and they'll feel like falling asleep. And that's what benzodiazepines were. And then they figured out, well, we can bind a different receptor and we can have this effect a thousand times more than GABA. And that's what the Z drugs are. And the problem with that, exploiting that one trick, you know, it's like, you know, if, if I had, you know, if I'm building a house and there's, there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of systems that need to be worked. There's all sorts of progressions. And I find one little hack to, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this instead of make this more robust. I change everything. Right. And, and what's happening when you completely, when you take the Z drugs like benzodiazepines and, or I'm sorry, the Z drugs like Lunesta and Ambien, one other I'm blinking, and then, or if you take a benzodiazepine, you're, all you're doing is that, that step that I talked about. So there's a, there's the blue light step, which secretes the melatonin, which causes all the cascades. Then there's the GABA, the neuroinhibitory, decrease your interaction with the world. And then there's a the body temperature. Well, all you're doing is you're forcing this one. Maybe you haven't secreted any melatonin and none of your brain chemistry has changed. Maybe you haven't dropped your blood temperature or your body temperature at all. But you take this, it completely dissociates your neocortex from your brain, you know, your brain stem and midbrain, essentially, from your from your lizard brain or monkey brain, whatever you want to call it. And now what you see all the time, and the the reason I it was really fortuitous, they 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 started suing people, they started suing the pharmaceutical industry over their Z drugs right around the time. I got interested in sleep. And so I got to, I got to see all the research because as you know, the pharmaceutical company only gives the FDA what they want to give them when they're seeking approval. But if redacted, they get sued, they everything have, else is redacted. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. and then when they get sued, they have to open the kimono and show all the research to see if they actually knew this or not. Mm-hmm. And they knew it. And so one thing is Z drugs on, on, a, on act on average, you'll fall asleep 13 minutes sooner you'll get 13 minutes additional sleep. Uh, You'll fall asleep 13 minutes sooner and you'll get 37 minutes of additional sleep. That was the best research they had. However, Z drugs completely destroy REM sleep. Like 80% of REM sleep goes away and about 20% of deep sleep goes away. So the net gain is worse, right? You're doing worse. You're not getting the same quality of sleep it's it's arguably not even sleep when you do sleep studies, especially you combine that with alcohol. People use alcohol as a sleep aid. Alcohol does the opposite. Alcohol get destroys about it will, it will reduce deep sleep by about eighty percent and REM sleep by about eighty percent or about twenty percent. So you take those two together, and this happened all the time when I was when I first started working with working on sleep with the seals. I'd get them sleep studies. And their sleep studies, observed studies, so it's like a you know a comprehensive PhD. They would come back ninety nine point nine percent stage two sleep. 
So they're not getting any deep sleep. They're not getting any REM sleep. Because they're taking they, Ambien. They were taking Ambien. Or yeah, because they're taking Ambien and alcohol. You know, they're like taking their Ambien and a couple of cocktails or a couple of beers, or whatever, and then they're going to sleep. So I, I honestly don't know how they survive. When you look at what happens with sleep, it's like anything else. It's like how do people survive six months without food? But you know, people do it. Like I, I don't know. There's all these extreme cases. How how they were doing this, I have no idea. But their metabolic panels were definitely showing it. <laughs> like, you know, their hormones were trash you know everything catabolic was high everything anabolic was low but i I digress but that's benadryl and and z drugs and sleep drugs and benzos yeah it's 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 amazing too because if you've ever seen a lunesta commercial it's like it's just this little you know you know benign butterfly butterfly, (laughs) just the butterfly and then the lands on the nose and you just have or whatever you know and then you go to this beautiful blissful sleep and really it's increasing your risk of mortality it's weakening your immune system you're not actually sleeping. You're just unconscious. You know, right. you're, not, you're not actually sleeping. Right. Uh, which yeah, is, it, would, it, it would be the same as saying. Like if you, you punched know, it, me like, and I was unconscious, that's not sleep. Yeah. I, I use that in my <laughs> lecture. I use that in my lectures all the time. I'm like, hey, you know, so-and-so out of the audience comes up and I hit him in the head with a baseball bat and he falls down. Right. Who would say, oh, he's asleep. Yeah. Nobody would say he's asleep. He's unconscious. Yeah. What if he drinks a bottle of Jack Daniels and falls down? Like uh, yeah. he's unconscious, right? We know that. But, you know, the, the Z drugs, I, I use the metaphors like, hey, if you wanted to go work out and say you had fitness goals, whatever they are, I don't care, but like you have some fitness goals and you're going to go to the gym and you're going to work out for an hour a day. And then you decide you really don't have the energy to do that. And you'd really like to, but you don't have the energy to do that. And you take a pill that like takes you to the gym, right? But you don't work out. And then you come back an hour later. Like, what do you think you're going to get out of it? That, well, that's what you're doing. When you're, when you're taking drugs to cause yourself to be unconscious, you're not sleeping. You're just going to the gym and like sitting in the waiting area and then leaving an hour later and you wonder why you're not fit. You don't get any benefit. You know, uh, like I said, you take, you take Ambien, you, you're decreasing deep sleep, deep sleep by 20%, REM sleep by 80%. You use alcohol, you have the opposite. You use the two combined, you have none. Antihistamines do about, 40, you know, 30 to 40% of both. So you just decrease the quality of sleep. Anytime you start messing with, like I said, you know, the melatonin is the starter pixel. There's so many cascades that start to change to cause your brain to go to sleep. But then there, those cascades keep changing to do different, to do different steps of your sleep, right? Like your chain, your stage of sleep is changing because your neurochemistry is changing. And, you know, we're just measuring it with an EEG and saying, oh, you know, the brain energy is shifted more over here and it's a slower waveform. Well, it's not like, you know, there's some computer in there doing that. That's a change of neurochemistry. So if you're going in there and you're mucking about with the neurochemistry of the brain and going unconscious and thinking that you're going to continue to get sleep, that that's completely nonsensical. Yeah. And, and some people argue, well, you know, some sleep, you know, taking it is better than not sleeping at all. And I would actually... I would actually argue the opposite. I would say actually yeah. taking those are worse than not sleeping. Yeah, because if you th- if you think about it, you take a Z drug, you fall asleep 13 minutes sooner. Okay, big deal. That's not even noticeable. And you sleep 37 minutes longer, but you've decreased REM sleep by 80% and deep sleep by 20%. So that's you, way more than doing? that's way, way more than 37 minutes of sleep. Yeah. Right? Like you you basically 
lost, you know, the efficacy of about three or four hours of sleep to get 37 more minutes of sleep. And again, you know, the, the sleep quality, you know, we call it sleep architecture when that polysomnograph looks a certain way. We're combining heart rate and movement and eye movement and EGs and like all that stuff's changing and that gets put into a little chart. And if it doesn't look like this perfect little stair step where you're stepping from stage one, two, three, four, cross, four, three, two, REM, back down to, like, if it doesn't look like that, it's not technically sleep, right? I mean, it it's, it's a lack of an interaction with your environment and the state of unconsciousness. And there's some metabolic benefit to it, obviously, but it's, it's nothing close to actually sleeping. Okay, so let's go back to you're in the Navy, you have, you're seeing these patients that are, these SEALs that are coming to you, these Navy SEALs that are saying, oh, I'm just taking some Ambien or I'm taking some alcohol. Tell me a little bit about the formulation. We were talking a little bit in the pre-chat about it, but I said, I want to make sure that this part is in the show because I yeah. just love, I just love a story like this. Tell me a little bit about how you started thinking about, okay, how can we get these guys off of these crutches, we'll say, or these, yeah. these sleep drugs, and then talk a little bit about the formulation and sort of the, the birth, if you will, of, of sleep remedy. Yeah. So it, it actually, it actually started all, you know, as, as these things do, I, I wouldn't say against my will, but not, not really anything I was aiming towards. You know, I, I went to the, you know, I, I had been a SEAL and then I went to the SEAL teams, you know, after college and medical school, I went back to the SEAL teams as their doctor and I was fully prepared to do all kinds of sports medicine and orthopedic stuff. Like that's what I, that's what I knew. And that's what I thought SEALs needed. And I got there and, you know, we built out this new facility and we had all of that. We had orthopedics and we had pain rounds. We had ortho rounds, we had pain rounds. We had physical therapists, athletic trainers, massage therapists, acupuncture, whatever. We had like a professional sports team kind of rehab and training facility. And then I was the dumbest guy around, which in the military, when you're the dumbest guy, they put you in charge. And so now I'm leading, you know, quote, unquote, uh, leading these guys and gals who all know way more than I do. And the SEALs, you know, they're like professional athletes. They don't want, they, the worst thing you can do is put them on the bench. And the most likely person to put them on the bench is a healthcare provider who says, oh, you have a medical problem. You can't do your job until we fix this. And so they lie. They don't ever tell their doctors what their problems are. But because I'd been a SEAL and I'd been a SEAL recently enough to where there was a lot of SEALs there that I had trained with and deployed with and I knew really well, uh, the guys trusted me and they came in and they told me their story, which was just all performance issues, really. They hardly ever talked about sleep because it wasn't a culture that really valued sleep. You know, we go, we go a week without sleeping during training. And, you know, it's really common to go three, four days without sleep as a SEAL. Like it just happens all the time. The culture just doesn't think you need it. And if, if you're really tough and you're a good guy and a hard worker, you'll just push through it because you're determined. You, you can know? sleep when you're dead. You can, you can sleep, sleep when you're dead, when you're which dead, you'll yeah. get there a lot quicker this way. <laughs> um, and, and so, but they came in and they were telling me, you know, like, <clears throat> You know, they're, they're getting weaker, like you know, they're losing muscle, they're gaining fat, their body composition shifts, they're getting slower, they're getting weaker, their motivation sucks, their concentration sucks, their libido sucks, their sexual performance sucks, they're moody with their kids, they can't concentrate at work, they don't feel motivated. And I had no idea, right? I'm like, dude, give me a, give me a joint problem or like some musculoskeletal thing. I don't know what you're talking about. And and so I thought, well, maybe this is like the shell shock or combat fatigue you've heard about in previous wars, like Vietnam, World War II. And nobody knew what those were either. Those were syndromes, but like, maybe it's that. And so I just started testing everything. I just said, 
go to the lab and like have these 17 vials of like everything I could possibly think to test, just test it shotgun. And I saw this pattern, you know, like really low testosterone, low free testosterone, high sexual bonding globulin, high estradiol, high HSRP, high homocysteine, high cortisol, high catecholamine metabolites in their urine. Like, and I, and I was just like, I poor thyroid function. And, and I was like, I don't really know. And, and it wasn't low in that an endocrinologist would say, oh, you need to do this, right? It's like, it's a TSH of 2.8 or 3.2 or something like that. A total testosterone with normal being between 250 and 1100. Maybe he's 28 years old, but his total testosterone is 253. And endocrinologist is like, it's fine. You're in the normal range, right? Right. But and normal so, for him should be 900. He, yeah, yeah, he should be way up there, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Because they don't age stratify all sorts of hormones that they should. And they do age stratify stuff. They should not. It's a mess. But so anyway, you're somewhere along the lines of, you know, hundreds of guys telling me the same story. I kind of sent off a light bulb one day when a guy said something about taking Ambien. And I went back and I checked my shadow files and every single guy who had been in my office was on Ambien. And I was like, oh, I wonder if that has any effect. And so like any other medical doctor, I didn't know anything about sleep, right? I mean, nothing i knew like i'd taken pharmacology so i knew that ambien was a gaba analog and i'd you know whatever a little sound bite i don't know what that means really so i had to learn a ton about sleep to even figure out if ambien could be affecting it and like i said right around that time the data started coming out about what ambien really does and i was like oh okay we need to get off of ambien and so i took you know i i I couldn't just take away their ambien and say suck it up buttercup you know like like i said earlier like i have I had to give them something else. And so I just, I just researched like, you know, like Cochrane database, I think is where I started and just, you know, not, not, nothing really esoteric or, or even lay audience. It just, just kind of tried and trusted sources like what works with, you know, what works with sleep, what supplements have been shown to have any efficacy with sleep. And of course there's like, herbs, you know, like lemongrass and things like that. Like there's herbal stuff that I don't know because I I don't have any training in that area. But as far as like the physiologic stuff, I, you know, I started seeing things that work like, well, tryptophan works and 5-hydroxy tryptophan works and vitamin D3 seems to help and magnesium seems to help and melatonin seems to help. And I was like, okay, why, why do these things work? And so then I started, you know, once, once I really learned enough about sleep, I realized Oh, well, when you give somebody tryptophan, like, you know, Thanksgiving on the, the, the turkey, right? And of course, you know, turkey doesn't have any more tryptophan than any other meat, but it's just, I guess you overeat turkey more than you overeat. And then, of course, there's the carbs playing, the carb load playing a role in there, but the stuffing as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so tryptophan becomes 5 hydroxy tryptophan. And then with the cofactors of magnesium and vitamin D3, 5 hydroxy tryptophan becomes serotonin. And then serotonin becomes melatonin. And so, oh, and then I found out the GABA helped, right? So my supplement, I was, I was telling guys, well, the only other thing I was doing is I had guys doing fish oil because they just had tons of inflammatory things going on from chronic overuse injuries and all that. But so I had, I just, I started with vitamin D3. <clears throat> Although you'd think seals get lots of sunlight, they don't like because they're always covered in equipment, clothing, and gear and stuff when they're outside. Mm-hmm. So I started with vitamin D3. I added magnesium. Then I found out about tryptophan helping. Then I found out about 5 hydroxy tryptophan. 
of course, I did melatonin, but we're doing way too much melatonin at the beginning. I think I was doing like five milligrams. I think I dropped it down to two, then maybe one. Anyway, and so I was just giving him a worksheet and saying, hey, go buy all these and giving him some brands and some local stores that had them. And they were having to drive around and get all of it themselves. And, you know, of course, they'd be sold out and like they came in different volumes, different counts, and some were powders and some were liquids, like the, the omega three were yeah. omega threes were liquids, and then the magnesium was natural calm in a powder, and then there's capsules and tablets, and, and it's just like a big mess for them to have and to try to travel with, and and so when I got out, they just they just kept haranguing. They're haranguing me while I was in, but that wasn't an option. And then when I got out and I was in private practice, they just kept calling me and haranguing me to make a product out of it. And so I decided, okay, I'll do it. And I'll just, I'll put it all in like these foil packs because those last for essentially ever. Right. And I'll put it all in like, I can't remember what was out at that time, but there was some kind of stick pouch that was kind of popular. And I said, oh, that'd be a good way to do it. Cause you can basically grab a handful. It's about 10 of them. You throw them in your cargo pocket and like, now you can travel for 10 days and not need any, not, you know, the volume of that's ridiculously small. And you can get those things wet and hot and smash them and let, you know, they last forever. And so I, my plan was, I'm just going to, you know, make this product and then I'm going to sell, you know, get a contract to sell it to the SEAL teams. And I didn't, I wasn't even really make, you know, I wasn't thinking of it as a business move at all. Like I wasn't even going to plan. I wasn't planning to make any money off of it. It's like, yeah, I'll make a little bit to cover my costs and to cover my time, but that, that's not a business move. I, like I'm, I'm a doctor. I mean, you go back to being a doctor, and so I just did private consulting and I started that practice over the course of the next year. Rob Wolf jumped in as a as a partner and Peter Atia jumped in as a partner and we launched it at Paleo FX and it was super successful. And to this day, you know, I, I still run the company. It's not a big part of my time, but it, you know, it's maybe 20% of my time goes to running that. I have a I have a team that does it now primarily. But I, I still I still run that nine years later. I still don't have a contract with the seals, <laughs> but <laughs> but a lot of seals still a lot of seals buy it. And if they call me first, I I you know I always sell it to them for you know essentially a, a dollar or two over cost to make sure we aren't losing money on it. And yeah, and so that that's still going. We we first launched it as a sleep cocktail because that's what the seals called it. They called it, mm. and that's why my moniker is Doc Parsley because that's. In the military, like everybody with medical training is a doc, whether you've had eight weeks of medical training or 18 years of medical training, you're a doc. And so they called me Doc Parsley. And so it was Doc Parsley Sleep Cocktail, which was a terrible name because people thought it, it, was, it had alcohol in it or that you're supposed to put it in alcohol. A lot oh, of firewalls. Oh, because cocktail name. I was like, Because it had that? the name oh, cocktail okay. in it. And I then the it, yeah. firewalls blocked it at like universities and government right. facilities blocked it because it had the word cocktail in it. And so we renamed it sleep remedy <laughs> and it's, it's the same thing. And then the only thing I, I did like a brand refresh. I knew about it when I launched this, but it was too expensive to put in the product back then. But the cost on phosphatidyl serine came down a lot since I've yes. launched this mm-hmm. and that, you know, that lowers, that helps lower cortisol levels. So I put a little bit of phosphatidyl serine in there, which is sort of, you know, the only trick I would say is in my product, because all this, all this in there, like I said, is the serotonin or is the melatonin production pathway. A lot of precursors, yeah. And then like a, it's like three micrograms of melatonin now. It's just, it's just enough to initiate because we don't want to overshoot and cause receptor downregulation and all that. 
So it's enough to initiate, but your brain has to keep making melatonin or, or you'll just wake back up. So I put the phosphatidylserine in. And then what I didn't know back when I was doing all this is that L-theanine seems to p- help potentiate GABA's activities in the brain. So we put that in there. And so now it's just all of that. And we, and we do, we, we worked with Whole30 where like can't have any flavorings, can't have any sweeteners in their product. And so we, pr- we produced capsules. We started producing capsules about five years ago. Uh, but we still have the stick pouches. Oh, that so was like, my question. Which one yeah. should, which one should, if I'm looking at the website now, there's the apple cinnamon tea and then there's the capsules. Then there's also the one for kids, which I'll touch on in just a moment. But yeah. is there any difference between the tea and the capsules? The capsules, of, of course, or let's say the tea absorbs faster because it's liquid. You don't have to, you don't have to digest the capsule itself. And then there's a, if you take the recommended dosage, which is three capsules, it's only about 90% of what's in the tea. Okay. Just because of volume. We, we are remaking it and we've gotten it down to two capsules. So the capsules will be a hundred percent equivalent very soon, but I don't like, I haven't had a single, like I have tons of customers that have been with me, you know, the entire, like the whole nine years, the company has been open, but and they they go back and forth between the tea and the and the capsules. Some people don't like the tea. It if you if you're somebody who's like keto or you do a whole lot of like if you have really high insulin sensitivity, the tea might be a little too sweet for you. If you make it with cold water, it's more sour than sweet. You make the hotter the the warmer the water, the sweeter it tastes. But I I do the tea because that's how we started and that's what we've always, you know, and it just feels right to me. My wife actually takes the capsules. And so I'd say, especially if you're a woman, there's, there's probably no noticeable difference between capsules and teas. A lot of women don't even take a whole stick pouch when they, you know, when they take my product and then some of the bigger guys take twice the dose, you know, but, but you can compensate if you did four capsules instead of three, it would be, you know, it'd be a little more expensive that way, but, but that would be more than a sick pouch. Okay. Wonderful. And then the sleep remedy for kids. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about, we haven't talked about kids a lot, but for children who are having trouble, is it for teenagers more? Like what's the age range that you would recommend? I would say, I I, kind of think of it more of like a weight, a weight product. You know, kids of course aren't, aren't tiny adults and it's, it's not exactly the same ratios. You know, I I did a lot of research of what you know what sort of supplement and nutritional deficiency uh, research was out there around kids, and so the ratios are slightly different. But you know, it's approximately a half of a of an adult dose, and it has a berry flavor, which is sweet. You know, it's, it's much sweeter, and kids kids like the flavor more. You know, i i have I have people who who give the product to their toddler. I mean, it's nutritional supplementation, so it's not like there's anything in there that isn't already in their body, and there's nothing in there other than than the vitamin D3 that doesn't just flush out with urine. Like the vitamin D3 is just going to obviously stay in the fat cells, but it's you know it's not a ton of vitamin D3. It's not going to make anybody go high, but you know, kind of like we kind of met, we kind of had the vision of school age children, you know, kind of. K through five, maybe sixth grade, kind of in that range. Probably by the time you hit adolescence, definitely by the time you're a teenager, you, you just take the adult formulation. Okay, awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have the link for purchase on on those as well. Doc Parsley, this has just been. Yeah, I think I think oh, we're yeah. just doing. 
I don't know. My team told you, but I think I think we. It's just, I think it's just Doc Doc Parsley forward slash your name. Yeah, I think it's Doc Parsley. Yeah, it's definitely Dash Estima. So we'll have yeah. that in the show notes, clickable link yeah. there. And this has just been a great time. I've had such a wonderful time chatting with you. This has been lovely. Thank you for all your expertise and your focus and for going over with me. I know that we. I was looking at the time and I was like, but wait, I have to talk to, <laughs> talk to you about benzos. So I, I appreciate your your time, your energy, your focus yeah. today as well. Yeah, my, yeah, my pleasure. Awesome. Well, maybe we'll get you on for part two and we'll do everything hyperbaric so we can talk about hyperbarics and peptides. That would be that would be yeah, a dream for me. I'd well. love to do that. A lot of overlap in those two, actually, for neurological stuff. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thank okay. you so much for your time today. Well, you're welcome. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 